Lavina is now going to come and read to us uh, from Mark 2, 1 to 17. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So far God's word. Thank you, Lavina. Uh, as we work our way through Mark's Gospel um, over the next few weeks and, and months, we're going to be kind of doing what we're doing this morning. We're, we're gathering stories that are related. Um, sometimes we'll be dealing with big chunks of the Bible, sometimes we'll be dealing with shorter chunks, uh, but always trying to, to see how Mark's put his Gospel together, how he's linked these uh, events and these ideas, and trying to work out exactly what it is he's trying to communicate to us about who Jesus is and what the work he's come to do is. So hopefully that explains uh, how we're going to be tackling this over the next few weeks. 
Um, if you've had a Bible handy or if you've got a Bible handy, please uh, make sure that it's open or available to you. We're going to be working our way through this story. There's lots of unusual details in there. There's lots of really interesting things. And if you can follow along, uh, you'll be able to note them as we do that. Uh, now, I've been be becoming more and more convinced um, over the last few weeks and months uh, that Facebook thinks I have a weight issue. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Google as well. I mean, they're kind of the same thing nowadays, but I'm pretty sure the internet thinks I'm fat. Uh, the reason being, and maybe you've had this experience as well, is that I am getting bombarded with weight loss ads, uh, all sorts of miracle diets and products uh, that will help me lose astonishing amounts of weight in astonishingly short periods of time. It's not that I've searched for these things. Like I understand that that's possible, but it's not that I have. Uh, they just pop up in groups and in ads and all over the place. The internet thinks I'm fat. <laughs> Maybe they've had the webcam on. Uh, <laughs> it may, you, you've got to admit, though, it does make you wonder. It, it does make you wonder reading those ads, doesn't it? I mean, lose 10 kilos in four weeks, that sounds awesome. I can do a diet for four weeks, I can handle that. Eat whatever you like and this miracle pill will help you lose weight. That sounds pretty good because I like food. And look, there's pictures and there's testimonies and there's stories and all these promises. Is there something in it? Maybe one of these will work. Is it too good to be true? Would it? Could it work for me? I mean, of course, we know it can't, uh, and we know it won't. We know that things that are too good to be true usually are too good to be true. Uh, we've become a bit cynical, haven't we? We're a bit jaded, we're suspicious of hype, we're suspicious when people offer things that can't, uh, we, we don't, can't see a way of, of seeing that happen. And unfortunately, I think we can have a tendency to take that attitude to Jesus. Not always, maybe, but sometimes, certainly. I mean, I don't know if you noticed what we saw in the, the, the passage that Lavina just read out for us. We see there that Jesus is promising something that is incredible. There, there's something huge there, isn't there? It, it's right there in verse 5. Sons, your, your sins are forgiven. I mean, don't miss how big that is and how radical that is. Jesus is saying to this man... Your sins are forgiven. Your bad deeds wiped out. Everything you've done wrong, forgotten. Your slate wiped clean. I mean, that's something, isn't it? That is something pretty remarkable. All your mistakes, all your regrets, all your guilt, gone. <laughs> that is some sort of promise. Is it just too good to be true? Would it, could it, work for me? I mean, honestly, that's probably a question, if we might not have asked it exactly like that, but it's probably a question that's occurred to us at some point. Could this actually work for me? Could it actually be true? And what we're going to see this morning is that Mark unpacks for us the answer by recounting what happens in these two stories. Jesus, uh, when we pick up this story in chapter 2, verse 1, is back in Capernaum. It's where he called his first disciples. It's probably his base of operations, uh, a place where he stayed at times. And he certainly picks up where he left off. Look there at verses 1 and 2. 
A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Uh, Previously, when he'd been there, he had healed all their sick, done amazing things, uh, and so they've obviously remembered. Think, that's awesome, he's back, let's see what's going to happen. And so they swamp him. Uh, It's a bit tricky to to kind of understand exactly the picture that we're we're being presented here, but it seems like Jesus is kind of stuck in the doorway of his house uh, and the crowd is so tightly packed on the steps and in the area around him that he can't even get out. He's just kind of stuck there. Think, well, what are we going to do? We'll teach. He's told us in chapter 1, he's come to teach, that's what he does. But what we see is that those in the crowd who really needed to get to him They actually can't. Look at verse 3 and 4. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. Uh, If you've ever tried to drive a pram through a crowd, you'll know the challenge here. Uh, It's frustrating. Uh, These men trying to carry their friend... Uh, just can't get through to Jesus. They're determined to get to him. They're convinced Jesus will help him, but they just can't get to him. So what do you do? Apparently you dig through the roof. No crowd, no roof is going to stop them, so that's what they do. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You might almost expect Jesus to be a bit annoyed here. I mean, after all, he's told us he's come to heal, uh, rather, uh, he's come to teach rather than heal. He's in the middle of teaching, and now obviously this is quite an interruption. I mean, you don't just pull a few tiles back and lower the guy through. The, the, the roofs are made of thatch and dirt. You have to literally dig through the roof. It would have taken time. And, and all the while, everyone's going to be going, What on earth is happening just behind you, Jesus? There's guys digging through the roof. Isn't that weird? But Jesus isn't annoyed. Uh, He looks at what happens and he sees an opportunity. Not only to show mercy to this guy and and heal him, but to do more, to teach more. And so he does something very unexpected. I mean, many of you I know will have read this story before and so it becomes familiar, but imagine you're reading this or hearing this for the very first time. The paralytic is presented to Jesus He's lying there clearly in need. His need is very obvious. What do you expect Jesus to say? Son, be healed. (laughs) It's what you're waiting for, isn't it? It's what you expect. Be healed. But what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. What are you doing, Jesus? I mean, great, but like, obviously he's in need here. I mean, we're amazed, aren't we? Jesus' response is so strange and so out of place. But notice what surprises the people who are there. They're not surprised at what he said. They're surprised at the presumption he's making. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why did this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're surprised. Jesus, how can you say such a thing? Don't you see the presumption? Now to their credit... They're actually right, aren't they? Uh, these, these teachers of the law, these religious experts, they are actually right. 
Uh, The Bible teaches that all sin at its heart, in its essence, is sin against God. If you um, go back to the Psalms, uh, hundreds of years before this, you'll see a Psalm that King David wrote. Uh, He'd done all sorts of awful things and he writes a prayer of confession to God and this is what he says in that prayer of confession. He says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned. It's not that he hasn't hurt other people because he had in lots of awful ways. But what he's recognising is that at its heart and its, its most fundamental level, his sin, and all sin in fact, is against God. And that's why the Bible takes sin so seriously. Yes, it causes all sorts of hurts. Yes, it does all sorts of terrible and awful things. But at its heart, what it is, is against God. A breaking of his good and perfect ways, a rejection of his good and perfect rule, all sin is against him. And therefore, as the teachers of the law notice, these religious experts, he's the only one that can forgive sin. All sin is against him, therefore, it makes sense, he's the only one who can forgive it. I mean, say after church you you run into our car in the car park, you put a nice big dent and scrape on the side. It's no good if Jeff stands up and says, it's okay, I forgive you. I mean, of course he does. It doesn't cost him anything. It doesn't hurt him at all. It, It means nothing, doesn't it? It's totally empty. He can't forgive you. Only the one who's offended can forgive, can't they? And so see what Jesus is saying here. By saying your, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is making an astonishing claim here. He's saying, not only can I speak for God, but I can act for God. He is doing what only... God can do. And as accused, that is blasphemy. And blasphemers ought to be stoned. It's blasphemy. Unless, unless it's true. And Jesus responds to what they say. And he makes it very clear it's not actually blasphemy. It is very, very good news. Look at verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get get up, take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I just want to pause there. Because Jesus has made a really big claim here. It kind of flies under the radar a little bit. But he's made an enormous statement as to who he is. Uh, You might have noticed it there in what he calls himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Seems kind of strange to us. But as we work our way through Mark, what we're going to see is it's actually one of Jesus' favourite ways of talking about himself. Uh, And he uses this title. He uses this title, first of all, because it's not uh, prone to being misunderstood by the crowds around him, but secondly, because it carries a whole weight of significance. If you're really familiar with your Bible, you might know of a book named Daniel, written about 500 years uh, before Jesus came. 
Daniel was uh, a prophet of God. He had all these visions that God gave him of, of the restoration of God's people and of the way God was going to triumph over evil. And you might remember one vision in particular in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel gets this, this picture of God's throne uh, and it is glorious and it's majestic and there's hosts of angels and powerful beings around it. It's, it's incredible and he sees God himself sitting right there in the, the, the midst of it all. He calls him the Ancient of Days, the, the song we sung earlier. He sees him ruling and then this happens in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He sees this, this amazing vision, God in all his glory and what happens? This man, a son of man, comes before God. I mean, it's impossible. No man can come into God's presence, but this man can. And what happens? God bestows on this man all authority and power and glory and a kingdom that lasts forever. God's own kingdom. That's amazing. What's it all about? <laughs> we don't find out. Because now, the Son of Man doesn't get mentioned anymore. The, the, the vision ends right there and that's it. No more mention of this incredible Son of Man. Until now. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. That's who I am. I'm that one who gets to go into God's presence. I'm that one given the kingdom. I'm the one given all authority. I'm the one who can approach God. I am not just a man. I am the Son of Man. I am God's Son. God himself. And that's why he can claim to forgive sin. It's a huge claim. But then he goes a little bit further, doesn't he? He proves it. Look at verse 10 again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, some of you might know we holidayed in Byron Bay recently. Um, you may be aware uh, that Thor lives in Byron Bay. I don't know if you know this. Uh, Chris Hemsworth as he's more commonly known, uh, lives in Byron Bay, apparently has a massive mansion somewhere, it's the size of a Woolies apparently, uh, and he was there. Now if I told you that whilst we were on holiday that we met Thor and actually became best buds, you might be a little bit dubious. You might doubt me, maybe with good cause. I mean, why would Chris Hemsworth want to be friends with me? No obvious benefit to him. Now, if I showed you a picture of the two of us, maybe that might go a little way to convincing you. But on the other hand, you might also know that Chris Hemsworth takes lots of photos with lots of fans, so that's actually not that remarkable. 
You might also know that I could maybe manipulate Photoshop to that extent. But if I took out my phone and showed you on my phone Chris Hemsworth's number, you might be impressed. Uh, if I called that number and it actually went through to him, you'd be even more impressed. And if I spoke to him and said, hey, Chris, uh, there's a guy here who doesn't believe that we're good friends. Can you just introduce yourself to him? And he did. Then I assume you would, have, you would finally be impressed. I don't know what else I could do to, to convince you. You'd be convinced, isn't it? I mean, that's, I would have to prove it. You can't just make a claim like that. You have to show it. You're going to doubt that. If I'm going to make a huge claim, I have to give you huge proof, don't I? Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, and Chris Hemsworth and I are not friends. No surprise. But that's what Jesus is doing here, isn't it? How do we know Jesus forgives sin? How do we know that this huge claim that he's made is real, that he can actually follow through on it? Well, he shows us. He shows us. I mean, humanly speaking, what's harder to say your sins are forgiven or paralytic, get up and walk? I mean, obviously the latter. And Jesus does it. Just like that, he does it. The paralysed man walks. I mean, we can't even do that today in most cases with, with, with all our, our medicine, and Jesus does it. This claim that he's made is not just a claim. It has been demonstrated. He's given us proof. Jesus is able to forgive sins. Offences against God, all the breaking of his perfect rules, all our rebellion against him, gone. Peace restored, right relationship given again. He is able to do it. Jesus is able to forgive sin. It's, it's so simple, especially if you've been in church for a while. That, that those words, we've said them so many times, it might just roll off. But just think about that. Just think how profound that statement is. Jesus is able to forgive sin. All that we've done, all our offence against God, all that has broken that perfect relationship, all our guilt, all our regret, gone. He is able. Because he is God, because he is given God's authority, because he is given God's power. And you see, not only does he demonstrate he is able, he demonstrates why we can be so incredibly confident in him. Because he confirms his ability, doesn't he? That the paralysed man walks. And we know beyond a doubt Jesus can follow through with what he claims. He is able. And this man is forgiven. Only Jesus can give that sort of sure and certain forgiveness. I mean, every, every belief system has a, a way of, of dealing with, with sin, doesn't it? Every belief system on the earth has a way of dealing with it. Some will deny it exists, say people are basically good. Many will say, well, you, you just deal with all the wrong things that happen or that you do by being good or, or by doing good and you can outweigh them eventually. All of them have a way of, of making up for it. But the problem with every one of them is how do you know it's worked? How do you know it's enough? How do you know for sure? that You, you can't, can you? 
You can't say for sure if you've done enough or if you've been good enough or if you, whatever. You can't know for sure whether it's worked or not until it's too late. Until you die, there is no certainty on this side. And that's what's different about Jesus here. Because Jesus offers certainty. He offers a way not only to deal with sin, but to be confident that sin is dealt with. To to, to not die with uncertainty, not wondering what might be, but to know already. To know today. The paralysed man walks, and if Jesus can do that, he can do all else that he says to Of course, I mean, he's given us more confirmation since, hasn't he? Uh, he's shown us how he deals with sin. He's shown us how he forgives. Well, we read on in the story and we see that he dies as a perfect sacrifice, as a payment for the debt of sin. But what's more, he also lives. He's raised to life as a proof that his sacrifice has been accepted, as proof that his payment is sufficient, as proof that his work is complete. See, Jesus is announcing to us here the very best of news. He is here to forgive. He is able to forgive and he can prove that his forgiveness is real and finished and complete. That we don't need to die wondering, but we can die knowing there is forgiveness in him. Now, if we stopped here, what we would have before us is is an amazing act uh, that gives us amazing confidence. But the question still hangs, doesn't it? But for who? But for who? Who's it for? And we're given an amazing answer. Jesus uh, again goes out to the sea uh, he's previously called disciples, he's previously taught the crowd there and now that the stage is set for more and that's what we see. Look at verse 13. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. Uh, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. It looks very straightforward but there's actually an enormous scandal taking place here. It's hard to comprehend that in calling Levi, Jesus has done something that would have shocked everyone, without a doubt, across the board. So we have to remember that at this time, uh, Israel is an occupied nation. They're, they're under the power of Rome. Rome rules, Rome enforces its will, and they're occupied and resentful of that fact. There's dozens of rebellions and all sorts of unrest that's taking place at this time. But Rome is in control. And the way that Rome exerts its control is by employing locals to do the job. Uh, Locals rule, locals uh, occupy a whole bunch of positions to, to govern the land. And one of those positions is the position of tax collector or duties officer. You think, well, who wants that? No one wants to work for the ATO even now. What about back then? But see, there was a bit of a perk. Uh, There wasn't regulation back then. Uh, There wasn't oversight. Rome just said, collect this amount of money. As long as you're doing that, we'll give you all the power you need to do it uh, and we won't ask any questions. Uh, You can see how that could be exploited. Uh, I'm going to collect 
twice that. Half for me, half for Rome. I've got their soldiers. You can't argue with me. Give me the money or I take everything. And they did. And we see records of the time. We see tax collectors were filthy rich. Uh, obscene amounts of money. They could take whatever they want, skim and extort. They were loaded. But there was a downside. They were also loathed. Because tax collectors were collaborators. They were collaborators with the hated Romans. And the, 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 the way that played out was, was terrible. Uh, tax collectors couldn't partake in society. They couldn't be a judge or even a witness in court. They couldn't go to the synagogue, the local version of the church. They were shunned by their families. They were seen as ritually unclean, so they couldn't even go into your house. Uh, if a tax collector tried to be generous to earn back some goodwill, their money was rejected. They, they couldn't actually be accepted by anyone. In fact, uh, leaders agreed that tax collectors were the exception. You could lawfully lie to a tax collector. You didn't even have to bother trying to tell them the truth. Tell them whatever you want. They were that hated. Uh, you think that's harsh? It is. But that's how ta- collaborators are treated, isn't it? Not just then, uh, but today as well. If you collaborate with the enemy, with the ruling power, you're hated. You're an outcast. You are scum. You're rich, but everyone hates you. And that's Levi. Levi the tax collector. And he's the one that Jesus goes to and says, follow me. It's a disgrace, an absolute disgrace. But Jesus compounds the disgrace because then he goes to a party with a whole bunch more tax collectors and even worse, with a whole bunch of sinners as well. Look at verse 15 and 16. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, you you hear the repetition, don't you? Look who Jesus is hanging out with, tax collectors and sinners. It's, It's there again and again. And you hear the revulsion of the religious leaders. Ah, it's disgusting, how are you doing this? Now, they're sinners. They're not only unclean, they're unworthy. They're social outcasts. They're rejects, tax collectors, prostitutes, criminals, terrorists. Why would you go to dinner with them? I mean, we get the impression as well, it's not just you know, a formal meal that you know, people are you know, very strict and impersonal. It's, it's a shared meal. It's a shared experience. They're together. They're in company with one another, close to each other. Why would you do that? It's, it's social suicide. Well, Jesus replies, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, it's simple really. I go to the people who need me. Why bother going to those who don't need help? What is the point in that? Uh, We saw the government do it recently. Um, I don't know if you've been reading about this. They've been passing out drought relief packages left, left, right and centre. It's great. It's it's badly, badly needed. Uh, But they got their wires a bit crossed in one particular situation 
very generously they gave a million dollars to a, a certain Victorian council uh, as part of drought relief. Only problem was, no drought. <laughs> no drought in that place. Lots of rain actually, really great growing conditions. Bit embarrassing. Uh, they got their money given back. Didn't look real good. Jesus says, not going to happen to me. I know who needs me. I'm not going to go to those who don't. Who don't. Jesus is saying, in fact, I'm going to concentrate on the ones who need me most. They're the ones I've come for. I've come for those whose need is most desperate. I've come for those who know they're in need, but don't think they could get it. I mean, you Pharisees, you, you, you think you have it. Uh, you don't think you need it, but you think you have it simply because you deserve it. And I haven't come for you at all, Jesus says. Jesus says you're actually wrong. You don't have it. You need it, but you don't know it. And so you're not going to receive it. I've come for them. The ones you've rejected. The tax collectors, the sinners who, who wouldn't ever have dreamed of receiving me. Those are the ones I'm choosing. I'm coming for forgiveness and life and hope to bring to them the most unlikely of people. And I'm going to give it to them freely. And you see, he comes for them and he goes to them. It's not as if Jesus comes to earth and he plants his flag and says, I'll tolerate you if you come to me, uh, no matter who you are. Instead, what Jesus does is he comes to earth and he goes to them. Uh, He invites them, he calls them, and he deliberately goes out of his way to spend time with them, the most unlikely of people. And, And do you note how he does it? We don't have Jesus saying, Levi, come and follow me, but go and clean up your act first. Uh, you sinners go and you know, disavow yourself of all you've been doing and then you're, you're worthy to come and follow. No, Jesus actually takes the step, doesn't he? Jesus says, I'm going to you exactly as you are. There's no moral reform before you come to Jesus. In fact, Jesus comes to you before you even had the chance. And it's incredible, isn't it? Not only does Jesus go to the worst, but he offers to them the best. Pure grace, generosity. He's he's going to those with nothing and offering them everything. He's come to the sick, the unworthy, the unclean, the outside, the rejected, and he's come calling them to himself, inviting them to share. Not only is he able, not only does he have the power and authority to give forgiveness and give restoration but he has come to give it to the worst of the worst, to anyone, no matter who they are, freely. He is saying here, you can come because he is calling you. And he is offering you complete and assured and guaranteed forgiveness for everything that you have done, for everything that you are. How? Well, simply by faith. I don't know if you noticed in the previous story uh, who it was who actually received anything from Jesus. And when we're told about the crowd, the crowd were amazed at what they saw. Uh, We're told about the teachers. They were really close by to what happened. But they actually didn't get anything, did they? Neither of them. Who did? 
It was only the paralytic. The one who trusted Jesus, the one who went to Jesus as the only answer for his help, for, for his need, the only hope for his plight. It's not enough simply to see Jesus. It's not enough simply to be near Jesus. Instead, to receive from Jesus means to trust him. Unswervingly, depending, faith. Not, you know, a certain amount of faith, as if, you know, you could possibly have too little and you need to get to a certain level. Uh, Not as if you had to have a certain strength of faith. Just faith. Even small, even weak faith. And then all of this is yours. If you are here this morning and you think that you're good enough, that that's not you actually. You know, you've got something to offer. You're actually doing okay. You're not a beggar. Then Jesus has nothing for you. The Bible actually says you're deluded, where he says we're all sinners, we're all in need. We just need to recognise that. And it's only when we recognise and realise that that we can actually receive from Jesus. But if you are willing to recognise, if you are willing to realise your need for him and admit your need for him and willing to accept just how desperate that need truly is, then everything he offers is for you. His call, his invitation is yours, his forgiveness, his kingdom, hope and life and restoration, it is yours and it is assured forever. Yes, those fad diets are too good to be true. I'm sorry to disappoint you if you're going to look them up when you got home. They will not work. But Jesus, who so much looks like he is too good to be true, too too easy, too much, He is real. He is true. Deep down in each of us, there is a a cry, a, a desperate cry. Could there really be help? Could there really be hope for me? And Jesus' answer is yes. He is able and he has come for you. Forgiveness is his to offer and he offers it freely. He invites you to receive. And yours, if you trust in him, is a place in his kingdom, in his blessing, with him forever. And all you need to do is trust. The message of the passage is Jesus is able and Jesus is inviting and forgiveness is yours. It's, it's a simple message, but it's very profound. And whether you've heard that for the first time or whether you're hearing it for the thousandth time, it's a message to reflect upon and, and to dwell upon. And we're going to have some time now to do that. We're not just going to roll into a song. Uh, we're going to have some time. You're going to have some time just to turn that over in your mind, just to consider what it is that Jesus is offering 
uh, the magnitude of that offer, the surety of that offer, whatever it is that's impacted you, uh, you can pray over it, you can just think over it, you might like to write some stuff down, uh, whatever is most helpful, uh, now is your time to do that. Uh, if you're new here, you might like to be reflecting on well, the question, is this what I'm looking for? It's clearly offered to me, is this what I actually need? You might like to pray for eyes to see it or for faith to trust that it really is true. You might like to test your own heart. Am I willing to accept my plight? Uh, am I willing to accept my need? Am I willing to turn to Jesus? You can use this time as a time of confession. You can use it as a time of praise and thankfulness and reflect again at the wonder of the grace that Jesus has shown. We're going to have that time now, quiet time for you to uh, turn these things over. Uh, and after a, a period of time, the music team's going to start playing. And when they do, we'll stand uh, and we'll sing a song of reflection.